Hello and welcome to the 66th episode of the Driving You Crazy podcast. I am Denver 7 traffic anchor Jason Luber and Joseph. I failed to acknowledge the 65th episode last week, an anniversary associated with the blue sapphire, symbolic of loyalty and, and some say can bring inner peace and, and bring fulfillment of dreams and prosperity. I'm Denver 7's pedestrian advocate, Joseph Peters. Uh, I would have a very large treasure trove of gems if we celebrated every podcast anniversary. Yeah, <laughs> you're right. So far, the 65th anniversary has not brought us a prosperity in the form of a paying sponsor yet. I, I thought we might have had Waffle House for a minute. Really? Yes, I did for for just a minute. Did but you, you baited the hook with the, I, I, with yes, the maple but, syrup. But the line broke, mm. uh, it, so it didn't happen. So we're back to courting businesses like uh, Rodney Delane Sneakers. Yeah, it, it would the, the sponsorship would go something like this. If you want sneakers, come to Rodney Delane Sneakers. If you want shoes, sandals, boots, flip-flops, clogs, wingtips, or high heels, go somewhere else. Rodney Delane has sneakers and only sneakers. Sneakers is the name of the game at Rodney Delane Sneakers. Love it. Sign me up. <laughs> Just Put like my that. my name on the dotted line. You see, right there. That would be a great paying sponsor. I would love that. Uh, I also want to make a special shout-out to a faithful listener of our podcast and a loyal viewer of Denver 7 News, and especially me. Hello to Sandy Ward, who lives out east of Denver in a little small town called Bennett, Colorado. Sandy had a problem with her over-the-air reception, apparently. She called one of our broadcast engineers, Dan Crandall, and Dan is the one who told me that Sandy's a big fan of Denver 7, the morning show, and of me. So, hello, Sandy. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. And she also listens to the podcast every week. So, thank you, Sandy, for not only listening and being a loyal listener and telling all your friends and family about it. Thank you very much, Sandy. We do appreciate it. How about, how about this? How about with this? We, we, we do this. We, we make Sandy the listener of the month right here on the Driving You Crazy podcast. Listener of the month. Yahoo! Yes. Yeah, there you go. Thank you. Congratulations, Sandy, for being the listener of the month. I wish I had a gift to give you, Sandy. Uh, I have no gift. I have a bag of animal crackers that I brought with my lunch today. Uh, if you want to stop by the station, I'll leave them at the front desk. <laughs> Not that you would really want that. For Sandy. Anyway, thanks for listening, Sandy. Thanks for everybody listening uh, to the podcast. Uh, there's the old saying, Joseph, when it comes to a wedding, something old, something new, something borrowed, something blue. In this case, the something is a someone who blew over the legal limit on the way to her own wedding. A woman in a white dress was pictured in handcuffs in Marana, Arizona. It's located a little northwest of Tucson. Police say the bride was arrested for driving under the influence on the way to her own wedding. I mean, we were all under the influence on the way to our wedding, right? <laughs> I thought you'd do that. After you get married. Mm. Police say the arrest happened in the late morning after officers responded to a three-vehicle collision in which one of the persons was transported with minor injuries. Police told reporters they weren't sure if she made it to the wedding or not. I, I, I have a feeling, looking at the picture, that her husband probably was proud of her. <laughs> that was my assumption <laughs> as well. I'm sure everyone by now has heard of the guy from New Jersey who got drunk in West Virginia. And then mistakenly ordered the Uber to take him home. And when the bill came, there was sixteen hundred bucks mm. because he, he thought the Uber was just going to take him back to where he was staying there in near West Virginia University. But it, but he fell asleep in the car, 
And later he awoke a couple hours later, already 300 miles into the journey, having no idea where he was going initially. How can you not know that? Because when you put in your in your Uber request, you put in where you are and where you want to go. Right, but if it's late at night and you put in an address that you think is in Springfield, Missouri, and it happens to be in Springfield, Illinois, <laughs> and you just happen to go all the way to Illinois <laughs> after the go. party, away you go. <laughs> well, Jamie uh, Gio Vinazzo, uh, Vinazzo? I'm, I know I'm, sure. I'm, I'm, I'm messing up. I know Jamie's name right there. Anyway, he's the founder of Clean e- of Eat Clean uh, Bro in uh, Freehold, New Jersey. Uh, he says his company is going to pay that fare and thank the guy for choosing not to drink and drive. So a mistake has now become actually a pretty good ending of a story. That's beautiful, man. So uh, the owner of this Eat Clean Bro uh, says that the decision helped keep the roadway safe for other motorists. Uh, he, he, the, the guy with the $1,600 bill had been begging for donations on his GoFundMe uh, page to pay the fare. Now that money, which was just over 400 bucks, instead will go to uh, a donation for Mothers Against Drunk Driving. Which which seems right. What uh, he had only raised four hundred dollars. The fare was sixteen hundred dollars. Yeah, so he was a little short. A lot of people, I could understand the urge not to donate to him for calling this Uber and just trying to teach him a lesson by making him pay for it himself. I know. I'm a little surprised he actually got four hundred dollars. Uh, what's going on? Reported though in the story, Joseph. I think is how much did the Uber driver get for driving back to West Virginia? Nothing, I suppose. Right. Well, I do. Yes, but he had the opportunity to make stops at every little town on the way back and turn it into a fun little Uber Do you think journey. he did? I hope he did. I mean, why? if you were an Uber driver, you could go on a cross-country tour and just pay for it by Ubering in different cities. People would just have to trust the fact that you would be driving in a completely unfamiliar city every day. Because it is like a taxi service where you pay for the time you're in there, but not for the time that it takes for the taxi or the Uber to get to you or to go away from you. Mm-hmm. But once it's over, it's over. So once you do that long trip, then like for a cab, it'd be a lot worse because they, it's not like they can uh, really find, I would think, a readable, an easy fare to take them all the way back to where they where they came. Well, I mean, it's $1,600 for what amounts to a, f- what was it, a five-hour trip, 300 miles? Pretty crazy, I That's think. a great deal. <laughs> Uh, Here's another bad story uh, this week of a pet and airline. A dog died on a United Airlines flight after being placed in the overhead bin. A fellow passenger said a mother and her two daughters were boarding the flight with their dog in a a small dog carrier when the flight attendant, quote, insisted that the dog be placed in the overhead bin. The flight attendant assured the safety of the family's pet so emphatically that the mother agreed to do it. I'm stunned that they agreed to do it. This story is horrifying. Now, the dog remained in that bin for the three-hour flight, wasn't given any water, wasn't given really any any air when uh, while it was up there. And when the plane landed, they, they got the dog out, but it was unresponsive. Apparently, the dog was barking for a couple of hours. And there was some turbulence on the flight. Well, the seatbelt light was on, but still, they so the people, they didn't get up to go check on the dog. What's horrifying, I mean, I can... Un- I can almost, almost understand why you might put a dog up there during takeoff. Maybe you could convince me of that. But once you're in flight, get him out of there. There's no reason for him to be in there for three hours. No, and any flight attendant would have known to put the dog under the seat right there at your feet. 
And then if there were any other bags, like my girls, they travel with these little roller backpack deals where they keep their their little blanket and they keep their little books and, and stuff and toys. That, that, so, right. so when we're ever traveling. Um, so I can imagine if, if, let's say, that was down there instead of the dog, then you, well, you, you move the backpack up to the overhead bin because there's really no air circulation in there. Exactly. The dog's going to be in there. It's going to be warm. There's not going to be a lot of air. Um, the dog's going to be freaked out because it's dark. Yes. Uh, and then so it's going to it's going to start breathing heavier. Yep. And, and and use up more of the air that's up there and just be overall freaked out. Yeah, it's just disgusting. It is. And United Airlines says it assumes full responsibility for the death of the dog. And a spokesperson could not immediately say if anyone has been disciplined in the incident. And a passenger on the flight told ABC that the flight attendant did not know there was a dog in the bag. When she insisted it, it be placed overhead. However, there were other accounts that the dog was actually barking and making noise and therefore would have alerted the flight attendant that there was a live dog in that carrier. And the people who had the dog would say, there's a dog in this carrier. I'm not putting it up there. I mean, there has to be some culpability on the dog owners for not taking a better stand for their animals. Exactly. I was thinking that too. Unfortunately, you know. I was because exa- because uh, when I was hearing this, uh, I was thinking it, there, there's no way I would be able to just sit there, even if the seatbelt light was on and it was turbulent. I'm going to get up and check on the dog. I mean, put me on another flight. Put me in a rental car. Now, upon hearing that there was a dog in the bag uh, after the flight landed, the flight attendant quote seemed frazzled and shocked. Now, according to the Department of Transportation statistics. On animal incidents on U.S. carriers, United has the highest rate of incidents involving loss, injury, or deaths of animals. 20 pets died on United Airline flights last year. 20. There's just, but you're exactly right. Just like when we talked about the college girl at the airport who flushed her emotional support hamster down the toilet. That, that, that's crazy. Yep. And then for the pet owners here, because the kids are, I, I think, pre-teens, 11, 12, something like that. Mm-hmm. And then the mom. They could hear the dog barking. Yep. They have a dog in a carrier that they know that they're supposed to put under the seat. How did they allow this to happen? I mean, the other passengers, even. somebody. At, you just get off the plane, then. It's just, it's a horrifying story. It is. All right, people, this is your lesson right here. If you have a pet, or maybe we should just ban pets altogether on the airplanes. Yes. But but if you do have a pet, you're flying with it, you don't have to get on the airplane. It's inconvenient, but isn't the life of your pet more important? It is time for this country to implement a national licensing system for emotional... for. For service dogs, right? Like service animals. And then let's put a blanket ban on anything that can't achieve service animal licensure. I mean, honestly, what is United going to do to uh, make this good for these people? I, there's no way. That, that is, I, that's literally something that it will stick with you your entire life. Yes, exactly right. And, and not only for them, but for the passengers and for that flight attendant and Ugh. everybody involved. So you obviously walk around a lot, right? You are... After all, our pedestrian advocate. And I'm sure you see people riding their bikes all over town as (laughs) you're walking around town. Mm -hmm. Uh, Do you think it's too dangerous anymore to actually ride a bike, even in the bike lanes? No. I mean, people do it all the time. The biggest danger to bikes is cars. 
and because bikes have to share the road with cars a lot of the time, sure, that's dangerous. But I think everybody takes enough care of each other, at least in this city, most of the time, that it's fine. Well, in Vancouver, I asked this question because the city has installed massive amounts of bike lanes all over their town. And unfortunately, many of the bike riders are getting hurt. So that leads me to this opinion column for a guy in Vancouver who says, rip out the bike lanes before more people get hurt. The guy who wrote it, his name is Lawrence Solomon. And Lawrence is the executive director of the Urban Renaissance Institute, a division of the Energy Probe Research Foundation. That sounds like a lot of fun. Woohoo. Now, Lawrence writes, cyclists are at a high risk when they're on the road. Accident rates per kilometer, because this is Canada, are 26 to 48 times higher for bikes than automobiles. The culprits are many, but three in particular stand out. Careless motorists who are obvious, who are oblivious to those with whom they share the road. Inexperienced cyclists who have no business being on the road. And reckless politicians and planners who build bike lanes as vanity projects. That was an interesting sentence that I that uh, that caught my eye. He says politicians promote bike lanes largely because inexperienced cyclists feel safer on them. Feeling safer, they are more likely to attempt commuting by bike, but there's a difference between feeling safer and being safer. Many, if not most, bike lanes increase the odds of an accident, particularly since inexperienced cyclists are ill-equipped to understand the hazards they face. Bike lanes, with their false promise of safety, lure the inexperienced onto roads and some, inevitably, to their death. Inexperienced cyclists sharing the road with cars really is like the underreported danger out there, right? Because if you're a cyclist and you like do 120-mile loops for fun, sure, go, go wherever you want to go. You're good, man. But it's the people who are getting back on a bike for the first time because they just lost their car, and it's been seven years since they've been on a bicycle, and they've been putting off like taking a test ride until they have to get to work one morning. That's when everybody's in trouble. Or they just take their casual riders, maybe an older rider riding a slower bike, more of the bike you would see on a beach, that kind of thing. Yep. They're, they're just more relaxed kind of riders, and, and, and uh, they're mingling with cars and people in cars that really don't care. What I find in this city specifically is that those riders are more apt to be on the sidewalk when there's a more readily accessible bike lane or bike path like literally one that runs parallel to the sidewalk that would take you out of the way of the average pedestrian. Now, Lawrence Solomon continues his piece saying, Over the decades, experienced cyclist and cycling advocacy organizations have often argued against dedicated cycling paths. In one study, German Cyclist Union noted that despite a proliferation of bike lanes, cyclists in the Netherlands are involved in 40% of all traffic accidents. In Germany, which has far fewer bike lanes, the proportion of accidents was lower. Their position, like that of many others, is that cyclists who know what they're doing are safer in traffic among cars than in bike lanes alongside them. That is fascinating. But think about, I love the Idaho Springs example here. You don't see a lot of bicycles out there, but if you did, and you have this one road with nothing painted on it, where everything has to intermingle, yeah, everybody's going to go really slow and probably be a lot safer than if you have, here's where the bicycles go fast, here's where the cars go fast, here's where the people go fast, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. That message, however, is not commonplace. Many cycling advocacy organizations are now captive to government funding and the cycling industry, which rightly understands that bicycle lanes benefit its bottom line. A case in point is the League of American Bicyclists, which mostly represents the interests of bicycle sellers and planners. 
unbundling the stats shows why it's a no-brainer that cyclists would share the same lanes as motorized vehicles. Relatively few accidents occur when impatient motorists overtake slower-moving bikes in their lane. Just 7% of car-bike collisions occur this way. In contrast, the overwhelmingly proportion of car-bike crashes, 89% in one study, occur during turning or crossing generally at intersections. No surprise there, right? How many times have you watched a bicyclist carelessly run through a red light because they didn't see any traffic coming when a car would have to be at a stop at that same red light? Yep. It's it's the same theory as if you're walking along. Whenever I go to a big event, if you're walking within the traffic of all the people you're doing just fine and it's easier to then move your way out instead of having these separate little where people some people are standing some people it's the same kind of it's the same kind of concept you get into the flow of the river and you're going to be safer exactly if the and lawrence continues here if the bicycle is in its own lane it faces additional threats from automobiles turning right across the bike lane in additional threats also occur mid-block at driveways when autos pulling into traffic making left-hand turns must dart across the bike lane and the adjacent car lane to turn left into the far lane requiring the driver to judge traffic coming from two directions in three lanes put it another way by some measures bike lanes make cycling safer in seven percent of car bike situations but more dangerous in 89 percent not a good ratio this op-ed by lawrence solomon continues yet because bike paths are fashionable municipal politicians compete with each other to remake their cities as world-class cycling cities often at great expense to serve small segments of the population typically just one or two percent of commuters cycle, and they, for the most part, lack the ability to ride safely. Now, according to Bicycle Federation of America, fewer than 5% of cyclists would qualify as experienced or highly skilled bicyclists. In effect, municipal cycling policies are being driven by cycling incompetence, leading to increased risk and limited freedom for the road-worthy cyclists, since many jurisdictions with bike lanes require cyclists to keep off of car lanes. Cycling is serious life and death business, and it's becoming more so as cycling ridership expands. It should be treated as such by license, licensing cyclists after they've learned the rules of the road and demonstrated their on-road competence, just as other vehicle owners must, by requiring their vehicles to be insured and roadworthy through headlamps, reflectors, and brakes, and by strictly policing their behavior. Here's my thing with that. I, d- I think the license should be optional. But I think if you get pulled over or you do something stupid and you don't have a license, the fine should be harsher. And and there is something to be said for actually policing those bike lanes, even if it's just having like five or six bicycle cops on duty in the city of Denver. Think of how many um, infractions they would spot every single day. All the time, running the red lights and, and doing dumb things and, and just trying to keep people safe. We should have the bike cops in those bike lanes patrolling it just like you have the car cops patrolling the car lanes. That. Right, more money proposals from the Driving You Crazy podcast. Now it's now this uh, uh, this op-ed by Lawrence Solomon continues. He says cyclists aren't alone in needing discipline. For them to share the road, those aren't sharing it with motorists need discipline as well to accept cyclists as equally entitled to the road. Police should crack down on unruly motorists, including those who display impatience at cyclists they perceive to be slowing them down. Politicians and planners need uh, discipline, too, to focus on real rather than perceived safety needs. 
Bike lane budgets should be redirected to safety at intersections, including through technology that identifies unfit motorists and enforcement. Because cycling is inherently more dangerous than driving, anyone who decides to cycle rather than drive faces an elevated risk. Bike lane propaganda by politicians and planners won't reduce that risk. Education and enforcement for cyclists and motorists alike will. That, from Lawrence Solomon, in a Canadian publication called The Province. That's Canada, where they love the bike lanes, like in Portland and Seattle, and these bastions of bike-loving communities. Denver is turning into that. Liberals. Very much so. <laughs> yes. And and it's it's interesting to see that a guy that is that left of center is advocating against the bike lanes, that they're actually more dangerous than, uh, than more safe, which is pretty interesting. I mean, let the record show I agree with them 100%. 2,000% if I could. He, he, every single point he makes is exactly the issue with the proliferation of bike lanes. And, and he's exactly right when he says reckless politicians and planners build bike lanes as vanity projects. I thought that was such an interesting sentence. Um, the, the, the bike lanes, for the most part, go unused during most of the day. They take up otherwise available lanes for traffic, adding to the congestion on those roads. If a city really wanted to in, in, encourage more people to ride bikes, then they would spend money to make a, a barrier-separated bike lane or just build dedicated bike lanes that are away from the general traffic, like we have across the Cherry Creek bike path. Exactly. Uh, I, I see all the time pictures posted by bike advocates who show delivery trucks or cars or even city vehicles blocking the painted bike lanes. Um, construction blocks it all the time. Either the city planners need to be all in on these things, or they need to be all out. They need to be all in or all out, one of the two. You can't go half-assed. Do it like me. Either you go full-assed, or you don't go any-assed at all. No ass, always preferable. (laughs) Is that what we've come to? Well, coming up here on the Driving You Crazy podcast... You know, it's rich in Dubai, a lot of people there in Dubai, and they don't like beggars. In fact, it's illegal to beg in Dubai, and it's actually becoming a problem. That story and much, much more as the Driving You Crazy podcast continues. Wist, and you're listening to the Driving You Crazy podcast with Jason Luber. Who's your favorite person on the show to work with? Oh, it's myself. <laughs> oh, let's see. Well, one of the advantages is I think we all get along on the show. Um, I mean, I don't really care for the other people on the program. I think they're all kind of... Uh... Mitch Jelnicker, only on Denver 7. I love politics. I love anything that is politically motivated. Um, I just think that they're very, very consequential. Something that I've pushed for in all of my reporting and all of my years um, is for people to get out and to vote, not just in national elections, but in local elections in particular. Um, And so in my last uh, city that I was working in, in El Paso, there'd be times when only a few hundred people would vote. And what they don't realize is that those votes for the the local elections make the difference between your city council representative um, 
um, and somebody else that that uh, you didn't have a say in. And so I love politics, um, but I also love um, human interest stories. I like hearing from a grandma who uh, cut the hair of President Nixon. I mean, just anything really. I love hearing how different people grew up and how they perceive the city and the world and how they grew to have those views. Megan Lopez, only on Denver 7. Welcome back to the world-famous Driving You Crazy podcast heard all over the world and even downloadable so you can listen to it on vacation while you're on your favorite cruise ship. Don't ever call it a cruise boat, by the way, Joseph. Don't do that. No. As one cruise ship captain said to me one time, we are not a cruise boat. We are a sheep. A sheep (laughs) carries boats. That means we are a sheep. I I, kind of took that as, as he's... A little tired of hearing the term cruise boat. Did we tell the story so you would have an excuse to use that accent? Uh, no, we didn't. That accent is wonderful. <laughs> Keep but up it, the good work. Man. Do it, the traffic with that accent okay, one right. time. But it leads me to this. We hear stories all too often where a person falls off a cruise ship, usually late at night, usually after heavy drinking. Yes. Uh, and usually into the sea at night where they where they never find them again. But this past week, on the final night of a cruise on Norwegian's Epic... A person fell off, but it was for a reason that is becoming more and more of a problem. The story on board was that a 20-year-old college girl who was on vacation with her parents was on the top deck of the boat, of the ship, sorry, about 15 stories high, (laughs) when she leaned over the railing to take a selfie, and when she did that, she ended up falling. She was holding on, trying to hold on. People trying to get her back up. They couldn't, and she fell all the way from the top into the water splash the parents said the other passengers made an attempt at at pulling her back up but since they couldn't they they threw one of those life vests or the uh the buoys to her and it had one of those beak uh blinking lights so that helped save her so she could grab onto that and you could actually see her floating in the water so she's fine so she's okay good for her man that's gonna be a story she can tell her grandchildren (laughs) the captain said on the intercom that there was a passenger overboard but she was successfully brought back on board, taken to the on-site medical facility, determined to be in stable condition. Now, after the ship went to Port Canaveral, uh, it was, they were able to get some further care, and she was apparently just fine. But that blinking vest is the thing that, or the blinking light on the, uh, on the buoy, helped save her life, which is really remarkable. I'm surprised they don't have more of those on these cruise, because uh, I've been on cruise boats, and, it's, and you, you see them sometimes, but you don't see them everywhere. Those round, you know, they're the round life yeah, buoys that you would throw out. With tiny lights on them. Exactly. I, I just think this is a remarkable story about picture taking. Did she actually get the selfie before she fell in? That's what I want to see. I wanted to see the selfie. And, and where is the phone? Did the phone fall into the water? Maybe it did. Maybe it didn't. W- will we ever find out? The real story behind <laughs> behind the selfie fail. We need that selfie fail picture. So everybody knows that Dubai, it's a rich city. But not many people know it's uh, so rich that beggars can earn a small fortune by asking for handouts. Begging in Dubai is so lucrative that people come in on three-month travel visas just so they can fill their pockets while begging on the streets. 
It may sound shocking, but some of these so-called professional beggars or smart beggars earn up to $73,000 a month. Fascinating. Not per year. Not per year. Per month. That is, $70,000 a month. That has got to be just one guy who's really good at it that's making seventy-three grand a month, But right? still, if you're begging and you're making... Let's say you're not the top performer. Let's say you're a <laughs> mid-level performer at twenty or thirty thousand dollars a month. I- I'm ready to fly to Dubai and start begging on the streets. I mean, the three-month travel visa thing is rem- again just rem- like let me go beg for two months and then use all that money the third month to have an actual vacation. Wouldn't it be great? Let me just go make three months worth of money, come back and do whatever I want with it. I remarkable there are pictures and videos of professional beggars taking advantage of the generosity and gullibility of wealthy dubai citizens and they've been showing up online for several years now despite the best efforts of local police to eradicate the practice is still considered a widespread problem if anything news headlines of beggars in in let's say Las the las vegas of the middle east earning insane amounts of money by begging have only encouraged others to follow their example some sources report that there are now Arab and Asian gangs bringing in beggars into Dubai illegally and then taking most of their earnings. So it's becoming a racket. (laughs) Begging in general is illegal in Dubai. But these are not your average beggars. They primarily target people who look rich, have a well-rehearsed, heart-wrenching story, often involving their families who are either sleeping on the streets or living in a war-torn region, and they're in need of urgent assistance. But really what sets these beggars apart is the fact that they don't settle for the usual handouts. They ask for considerable amounts, like $250 a time or more. And some people give it to them out of pity. The thing is, is when you're begging for money and you ask for a specific amount of money, it makes it more likely that you're going to get that amount of money. I had a man ask me for $15.83 on the streets of Savannah, Georgia. I've never forgotten that number because he was very precise about it. Now, why he needed that exact amount of money, I can't tell you. Did he have a drug habit? Maybe. Did you give it to him? Absolutely not. (laughs) Very good. Come on, man. Do you give to beggars? No, I don't. We've talked about that. Because beg- you're, you're 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 still enabling these people to continue their drug and alcohol habit. Is beggars a politically per- correct term in America? Can we even call them that anymore? I don't know. What's the other term? What's homeless the political- people? Right, that's- I mean, and that's not even good enough. Well, I have no idea what the political correct term is anymore. Panhandler, maybe. <laughs> well, local authorities there have been carrying out year-long campaigns against these professional beggars especially after discovering how much money they're able to extort out of wealthy Dubai residents, and some of the beggars earn a couple of hundred dollars an hour. Police say the majority of beggars they stop are from out of the country. 2017, apparently, was a good year for professional beggars operating in Dubai. It was declared the year of giving by the president of the UAE, and authorities launched a number of initiatives to help the less fortunate, both in the uh, United Arab Emirates and abroad, but the beggars and the crime gangs involved are seeing this just as an opportunity to help themselves. Mm. And those caught begging Dubai or other UAE cities risk jail time, deportation, but the chances of earning a small fortune virtually overnight, apparently it's too hard to resist. The temptation is there. You get more of what you incentivize. (laughs) And there you go. How are these people so rich? 
That's well, the Well, did you buy question. people from the oil? They, there are a lot of oil. There's so much oil money there. How are, They're rich enough to just hand over $250 yes. to this guy begging on the street? Come on, man. Oh, yeah. These I are the same it. people buying these ex- super rich cars. They're, they're, their police force is the one driving the Lamborghinis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they have money. Ugh. Lots and lots of money. And speaking of rich people, we have another new ride-sharing service here in Colorado, and this one's a little different because they're using a fleet of... Teslas. Tesla <laughs> Tesline says they have this mission to provide patrons high-end, cost-effective rides with a luxurious feel. They don't use an app. You actually have to call a physical number to get your ride in this Model X SUV. And you're probably thinking a ride in the luxury Tesla is probably more expensive than the, the cheap services out there. Well, Tesline's founder, Kyle Ewing, he says that by using electric cars... His company is able to provide the consistency and professionalism of a private car service, but at the same price as Uber or Lyft. Well, in fact, a trip from Denver International Airport to downtown Denver, he says it costs about $59. That is not the same price as Uber and Lyft. What's Uber and Lyft cost? I mean, you, you can get a good ride to the airport from downtown Denver to $30, depending on the time of the day. So it's double the price, basically. Exactly. They say they don't have a surge in prices. So if you have rush hour, you're not going to get a uh, extra charge. He says a trip from, let's say, DIA from the airport to Keystone, which is right next to Breckenridge, is 157. Uh, up to Breckenridge is 164. When compared to shuttle prices, they can cost anywhere from 150 to 200 dollars one way for a family of four. And sometimes they upcharge for your gear, your luggage, and your gear and your skis and that sort of stuff. Okay, I, I would I would much rather ride in a Tesla personally than one of those vans. I, I'd rather ride on a scooter in a snowstorm than one of those vans. <laughs> Why well, uh, are you anti-van? Well, it's just those vans. It just they're just they're it's better than a bus, but just a step above one of the buses. See, I think the buses are great. I think the vans are great too. To be honest with you, the old CMEs, would I ra- Mountain now, Express. Would I rather ride in a Tesla than one of those things? Absolutely, but I can't guarantee that the cost efficiency of that makes sense. Yeah, they they say why not why why not arrive in style for about the same price? Mm. When asked whether Tesla will eventually become an autonomous car service because Teslas are are going that way, he says that the owner says that the vehicles have the capacity and the capability to do that. But as soon as the government says we don't have to have a driver anymore, we'll put the drivers in the office and they'll help manage the business. And let the cars drive themselves. So there you go. He's ready to go fully autonomous. <laughs> I don't <Yay>. know. <laughs> Does the autonomous car uh, take your bags out of the back or no? I would trust the autonomous driver more than some of the drivers that have liquor on their breath when you're coming back from the mountains. Uh, that's probably a, or Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, and in the past, we've talked uh, about some of the ways that people try to save gas by driving certain ways, like slower speeds. Drafting and coasting, that sort of thing. Well, NerdWallet has a story recently that says these gas-saving tips don't work. Mm. NerdWallet says the problem with some of the surefire tips is that they're more urban legend than fact. We did a story about, uh, we did that story, what was it, about two or three or four episodes ago, remember? Yes. They say that some of the tricks might have been true back in the day, but improved automobile technology has erased any real benefits. So here, then... Our nerd wallet's favorite non-gas saving tips and a few suggestions they think really help. Using gasoline additives. Auto shops have racks of fluids 
that promise to send your fuel economy through the roof. And you can even, at the My King Supers gas pump, they have that fuel tech thing that will pop up. So as I'm fueling, I could hit a button, and I don't know, it's like 10 or 15 bucks, mm-hmm. and it will add, put the additive right there in my gasoline. That brings me to another point, off topic. How much gas, because my, my little Volt, <clears throat> when I have to fill it up, I have to put in the the high test stuff. Yes. So how much of the, because most people put in just the regular gas, how much of the regular gas is still left in the tube, not only the tube from the pump handle all the way to the top there and then into the tank, how much of that gas, how, how many gallons is in that tube before my higher expensive price gas comes out? And how much of my higher price expensive gas is coming out into the next jackball that's getting the regular gas? Like well, a gallon or two? Am I paying like for a, an extra gallon or two of of regular gas and I'm not getting the premium stuff? I think that's a wonderful question. Can we do an undercover investigation? How do you measure that? I, I don't know. I, that's what I want to know. That's Dude. exactly what I want to know. I think we should hit, hit up what Kovaleski or or Jacqueline or somebody to figure this out. So you're saying if I just put if I went down there, I put in that I want the high test gasoline, right? But I only put like a gallon into a gas canister. How much of that gasoline is going to be the high quality stuff out of that one gallon? Because you know from the because there's still gasoline in in the the tube or in, in the in the hose. That goes from where I, I have the handle. When the it goes all the way up to the top little connection there. Mm-hmm. And then from there, it has to go down into the ground, into the tank, or wherever. They, they have to have some kind of a distribution three-headed deal that allows you to, to, to go between the one and the two and the three levels of gasoline. Yes, and when you think about how much real estate a gas station takes up and where that those tanks are located, the, the little tube to your gas pump has to travel quite a bit of distance and it is entirely possible that there's a gallon's worth of fluid in there maybe that, two yeah yeah so am i paying for gas so when i when i hit the my, my 93 button and i start filling it up the first gallon or gallon and a half is some other guys regular unleaded that that i'm i'm sucking out of there and then i finally get to the good stuff but then my good stuff is in that tube well, for like, the next guy who comes over and just gets the regular gas, so he's getting the benefit of my uh, using the the higher test. Well, I mean, but that's not your gas, though. That's it's the my gas. gas. <laughs> I paid for that gas up that tube. Well, no, you paid for the gas that you got, which two gallons of it happened to not be up to your standards. But yeah, there you go. <laughs> my gas is still in the tube. <laughs> the bad gas is in my car. I'm not buying Good it. gas in the tube. No. All right, all right. Back to the thing by Nerd Wallet about the gas saving tips that don't work. He says, uh, turning off the air conditioner. It takes a lot of energy to run the air conditioner, so it makes the engine work harder and burns more gas. The problem is, if you turn off the air conditioner, you'll probably want to open up the windows, which could eliminate any potential gain by creating aerodynamic drag. The road ed test editors at Edmonds tested this tip on two occasions. And found no savings in one case and only a small difference when driving a large pickup truck. Their conclusion was that modern air conditioners are so efficient, they don't cause a substantial drain on engine efficiency. So what does work, a vehicle's aerodynamic qualities become more important the faster you drive. So avoid roof racks and high speeds on long road trips. Beautiful. That's beautiful. 
Buying gas early in the morning. Liquids become denser at colder temperatures, so buying gas early in the morning when it's cool means you would get more for your money, right? Not really, they say. Airlines measure fuel by weight rather than volume, which seems to support this tip. However, you buy gas that is stored in underground tanks where the temperature variation is only a few degrees. What does work, though, they say, buying gas early in the morning boosts the fuel economy because you'll hit less traffic and you won't sit there idling as you wait for an open pump. As somebody else is getting your good gas. How often do people really sit there idling waiting for a good pump? Not me, because I'm there just fuming that somebody else has my good gas. <laughs> Buying fuel-saving gadgets. The creativity of these gizmos, or at least their marketing, is truly impressive. Like weeds, they crop up when gas prices climb higher. Popular mechanics discovered that one device, which spins the air entering the engine, actually decreased fuel economy. What does work, change your air filter if it's clogged and looks dirty. Your mileage will improve, but probably not enough to easily measure. And over-inflating the tires. Less rolling resistance equals less energy consumed. That's certainly true. And it's also true that probably inflating your tires is less important. And it's also true that properly inflating your tires is important. But overinflation is too much of a good thing. Even 10 PSI over the manufacturer's recommended levels creates a more narrow contact patch, the part of the tire that's touching the road. Not only does that reduce your traction and increase braking distance, but it also means your tires will wear out faster and replacing your tires is far more expensive than anything you would be saving on gas. What does work? Buy a $10 digital tire gauge and inflate your tires properly. And be a hawk, man. Like, inflate your tires every three days if you need to, just to make sure you're at that proper PSI all the time. I still, I'm going to be looking into this whole how much gas is in the tube deal. Well, what I always am curious about, and I know that we've done this story in the past, I just can't remember the result, is if it's more fuel efficient to drive a manual transition than an automatic transition. Because that's always been the argument for driving the manual over the automatic that actually makes sense. All the other arguments are just people are used to one thing over the other. Well, the manual, believe, uh, I believe, is more fuel fuel efficient because you're dr- you can coast in neutral more often and uh, you typically get better gas mileage that way because you're shifting and you're not always in gear. Well, how often do you coast in neutral? And and, and maybe that's just when my you're, ignorant. When you're stopping or... Okay. Right? Well, I mean, I'm just saying, I think automatic... Did you drive... You drove a stick, right? I always drove an automatic. Oh, okay. I, I used to drive a stick all well, the time. And my, and my argument has always been that the automatic technology has gotten to the point where there's no difference between your automatic and your There's manual. probably very little difference. Probably very little. But, but that's the same way with all the technology for all the cars now. They're so fuel efficient and they're they're... It's just it's just hard to get squeeze out that little extra bit of. Well, gas. we talk about autonomous cars, but like automatic transitions were a really revolutionary thing, and that happened 30 years ago. There you go. There you have it. More than 30 years ago, right? <laughs> like a lot more than 30 years ago, right? I don't know. I'm too tired to to really to really oh, count geez. back the years. You're killing me that you don't. I'm, know these I'm facts. really. <laughs> Go look it up. Thanks again for being here as part of the Driving You Crazy podcast. We appreciate uh, you listening. If you want to contact us, I'm at Denver 7 Traffic. I'm at Joseph Denver 7. And we'll see you next time. Until then, I'm the traffic guy, Jason Luber. I am facts advocate, Joseph Peter. Be safe, and as always, happy motoring.